so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. You know that Brad Paisley song, Waiting on a Woman? Waiting on a Woman? I'm going to change those lyrics. Really? What are you going to change them to, Lindsay? Waiting on... Leatherwood? Yes, something like that. Ah, ah, ah. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me, back, finally, in action, is Brent Leatherwood. Yes. How's it going, Brent? Welcome back. It's going great. I was traveling, what, two weeks ago and then last, well, I was traveling both weeks, but last week it was, it was spring break. So our family got away, but both, both trips were fantastic. One was to Atlanta and the other one was down to Florida. And so I'm, I'm back and I've got the, I've got the energy that you need, Lindsay. Right. This is what happens when Brent Leatherwood goes away on vacation and comes back. It's like Brent Leatherwood energy times plus a thousand. <laughs> it's a little overwhelming. <laughs> so be prepared for the energy in today's podcast. <laughs> so uh, well, let's... It, it also happens that, as we will explain and get into more later. But like today's a great day for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And it so really that, is. So that's why I'm I'm particularly pumped. Yeah, well, I am really surprised because you have not started this show with much pep in your voice. Seems like that you're trying so to control not, it. Okay, well, that's you're bearing false witness. So. Fake news. It's fake news. <laughs> fake exactly. News. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take some of that energy and talk about what has been happening lately. And we'll start with what we at the ERLC have been talking about. So we've had a particular emphasis this week on the issue of gambling because we want to be able to serve state Baptist leaders. And they have told us that Gambling is really an issue that they are uh, wrestling with, not among themselves, but within churches and in their states. It's it's something that they want to make a, a difference in. And so this article by Barrett Duke is titled, How Gambling Preys on the Longings of the Heart, Seven Reasons Why People Gamble and the Bible's Better Answer. And I appreciate the angle of this piece because we can logically work through the reasons why gambling is unhelpful. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, But we often neglect the heart. And as Christians, we are people who should seek to submit the thoughts and the intentions of our heart to God's Word. So Barrett explores the heart motivations for some of the reasons why people gamble and gives an answer to what the Bible says about that and um, gives us a way to evaluate uh, motivations. And I am thankful for that. I thought it was a good angle for us as we're thinking about gambling. Well, I mean, I'm I'm just so thankful for Dr. Duke. He, you know, ran our Washington D.C. office for many years, and and now he serves uh, as the the state exec, Baptist state exec, out in uh, Montana. 
And so he is seeing uh, up close and personal what pastors are dealing with and, and what Christians in the pews are, are wrestling with. And this is certainly an issue that a lot of believers either are dealing with personally or see in family members or friends. And, you know, this is a, this, this particular issue, I think, you know, this week and last week, we dealt with addiction. This week, we talked a little bit about uh, gambling and provided some resources in both areas. This comes directly from conversations that we had with state executives and with our, our Baptist uh, state partners who were saying that these issues in particular are, are something that they are seeing uh, the local church have to deal with. And so, ERLC, could you all provide some helpful resources? And, and that's exactly what these last two weeks have, have done. And so I am so thankful that our team has been able to concentrate on this. We've been able to get uh, great pieces. Uh, so thank you, Lindsay, uh, for, for stewarding that forward. And, and I'm thankful that uh, Dr. Duke was able to pin some thoughts uh, in this direction that I think most folks will find very helpful. Yeah, well, it is a team effort for sure. Now, just one tangent real quick, Montana. I feel like that's a place you'd like to settle down your boots. I can see you with some Levi's on and your plaid shirt and a cowboy hat and some boots riding a horse well, into the I, sunset. I do love to do that, knowing as well as me as well as you do, uh, probably that would only work for about two and a half months of the year in Montana. June 15th to probably about August 30th, and then I would have to because it gets cold. It gets cold. Yeah, yeah. Right, because cold. last summer we went out to Wyoming, mm -hmm. and they had had a snowstorm a week before we got there. We got there about June 20th. Oh, <laughs> they, man. And it was like a blizzard. <laughs> yeah. And impressed. I said, you know what? It's real pretty out here, y'all, but— uh, You'll stay in Tennessee. We don't have snow in our mountains in East Tennessee. <laughs> no. I think that's about as as much as I could handle. That's in June, right. in June, we don't have snow in our mountains in East Tennessee. So yeah, yeah. Well, we're glad Dr. Duke is uh, suffering through the cold weather and serving Baptist well there. Another article I wanted to bring up is by Rick Morton, the Vice President of Engagement at Lifeline Children's Services, friend of the ERLC. And his article is titled, Christians Remember the Vulnerable Children of Ukraine. And Dr. Morton, he has uh, several children who have been adopted from Ukraine. So this war in Ukraine has hit very close to home for him. And he points out that an estimated 200,000 orphans are infinitely more unshielded today than ever before. So in the midst of the, what do they talk about, 3.2 million, 3.1 million refugees and then displaced peoples, there are these orphans. And he says this, even during peacetime, vulnerable Ukrainian children face steep odds and a bleak future. Though Ukraine has sought to improve child welfare in the past 15 years, the majority of vulnerable children, or 60 to 70%, turn to prostitution or crime after aging out of the orphanages at 16 years old. An estimated 20% get imprisoned and 10% attempt suicide. Children with special needs get shipped far outside of Ukraine cities to grow up in isolation and developmental deprivation. And he also points out that if Russia takes over Ukraine, then likely Ukrainian children who are orphans will be closed off for international adoption, which, of course, Russia has done. So that gives us a picture of how awful it can be there in Ukraine for children because of what they face and how we as Christians— need to be aware of this and pray for these sweet children and the adults there who are trying to take care of them and uh, pray that the Lord would intervene somehow. 
This piece is so perfectly timed. I didn't even realize that we were publishing this piece from from Dr. Morton, who is, I mean, Rick is one of the foremost advocates out there uh, for adoption. And we so appreciate him. We appreciate uh, Herbie Newell, who heads up uh, Lifeline Children's Services. That whole team uh, just has such a wonderful heart for this. And we are so thankful to be alongside them on this issue. Uh, But I I was saying to someone, and then I, I tweeted out, earlier this week, how in this modern era where we have such short attention spans, uh, it, it, pretty soon there's going to be a temptation to just kind of start having the atrocities that are occurring in Ukraine right now at the hands of the you know Russian military. Uh, there's just going to be this temptation to kind of look away or ignore it or just have it kind of fade in the background. And we can't do that. We can't allow that to happen. And this piece is one of several reasons, but it is especially why for us as Christians, we can't let that happen. Uh, We are called to be voices, to be advocates, to plead for the orphan, the widow, the marginalized. And and so uh, this is right in line with that. And we've already seen, you mentioned, you know, Russia has already basically, you know, shut down uh, adoption attempts out of that country. Well, they're actually already doing that in Crimea and in the eastern portions of Ukraine already. Uh, so that that's exactly what they're going to do if they are successful in uh, this this illegal invasion of the country of Ukraine. And so uh, Dr. Morton's piece here is so well timed. And you know, it's funny when I when I was thinking about tweeting that. I didn't know that we had this this resource uh, that was about to come out, and I, I'm so glad that we did because it's just like, man, this this just puts meat on the bones of of what I was saying. So, really love Rick's heart here, and and we should also mention his podcast interview uh, with our our colleague Chelsea Sobolik out of Washington D.C. He talked about adoption and Ukraine and his own personal experience with adopting uh, children from uh, that country, and uh, he got. Got very emotional, and and we're we're so so thankful that he was uh, open and honest and transparent with his heart there. Yes, Chelsea said both of them teared up multiple times, and you can search Capital Conversations podcast to be able to listen to that. And I would encourage you to do so. And then finally, to talk about the gambling issue, our colleague Jason Thacker has an article titled "How Christians Can Think About the Epidemic of Online Gambling and Sports Betting." And Brent, actually, you were the one who had the idea for this article. It seems like every day I see more sports betting commercials. I can't remember the names of the places, but King something and whatever. There's so many different commercials about it. I never used to see commercials about this type of thing. And it is a growing industry, of course. Just the technology age, the digital age has just changed everything, just like it's made pornography more accessible and inescapable. It's done the same thing with gambling. Jason points out that there are a total of 10 million people in the United States dealing with serious gambling addictions, that gambling accounts for about $53 billion of revenue in the U.S. alone, with $900 million in sports-related gambling in 2019. The sad thing about this is that the gambling industry is often a predatory industry that preys on people who do not have the means to be able to gamble. They are poor and they don't have the money to invest. And then when they do invest the money, they lose out on the money. 
and the industry is set up just to make revenue. And so it's not looking out for the vulnerable among us, which is a problem. And that's an angle that Jason points out as we're thinking about our own involvement. As Christians are asking, should I be involved in the gambling industry? We have to think about the angle of how our sin and our greed and our pride has an effect on our society. We don't just do things in a bubble. That's been the argument, you know, in the sexual revolution. It's it's not going to affect anybody else. It's behind closed doors. You know, nobody will know. But we've seen it has affected a, a, an entire culture, an entire society. That's the same thing with gambling. And so I appreciated this article with information, with history, with statistics, and I would recommend it to you. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, these commercials and ads and and posts and it's ubiquitous now. It's everywhere. And you know, I want to you you had said last week in in your wisdom uh, on our podcast uh, from last week you were talking about cohabitation and and how it's in our churches and Christians have just kind of like become accommodated to it. Just kind of like we've we've let the culture wash over us in that respect. I would submit this is another area where we're just kind of letting this wash over us. And you need to read Jason's piece along with uh, Barrett's piece that we mentioned at the the top here because they go so well hand-in-hand together. And we need to realize this kind of betting, the the ease of which this gambling can occur from your phone, from the comfort of your, your living room chair, right, it is going to have downstream effects on marriages, on families, because, you know, resources that that could be going elsewhere uh, are going to be going to this. And we need to provide a different way. And so both of these pieces are really complementary of one another. And again, we've, we've been focusing that our, our, our emphasis for this week has, has been on trying to equip the church with resources from about this area and this, this issue. And both these pieces do an incredible job uh, of that. You know, and there are several other major things going on in the world, in our country, uh, this week that we will talk about here in just a minute with Brent in the culture section. But for now, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, Brent, welcome back. And why don't you hit the ground running and let us know what's been going on this week? Well, Lindsay, we talked about this at the outset, but you know, the day that we're recording this on on Thursday today, I, I, today's a great day to work at the RLC. I mean, th- this is the kind of day that I I came to work uh, here at, at the commission. So earlier today, we'll get into both of these stories. Earlier today, the administration, the Biden administration, uh, announced made a significant announcement about refugees from Ukraine, and uh, right after that, about an hour after that. Uh, we had a significant uh, religious liberty case uh, drop at the U.S. Supreme Court, and your ERLC was uh, very active in in both situations. So let's just kind of work through those here as the context for our culture content section. So according to the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. will accept up to 100,000 refugees fleeing the fighting in Ukraine as the humanitarian crisis from Russia's attack on its neighbor worsens, administration officials said on Thursday. More than 10 million people in Ukraine have been uprooted by the fighting, the United Nations estimates. More than 3.6 million of them have fled the country, the U.N. says, most of which are bound for Poland. So this is significant, the 100,000 number, uh, because back in early March, we actually sent a letter to the president 
uh, as well as to the State Department and HHS, which is where the refugee resettlement program uh, is run out of, and let them know, hey, we appreciate uh, thus far what the administration has done in terms of trying to combat uh, Russia through various sanctions and whatnot, but more needs to be done. More needs to be done in terms of uh, welcoming refugees, so let's turn our attention to that. Intercountry adoption, which we talked about previously with the, the challenges that Russia is facing on that program, and providing the resources to get this done. And so uh, this announcement by the administration is certainly in line with what we asked. We would characterize this as a very good, solid first step towards uh, helping those who are seeking refuge and fleeing uh, the terror that is being inflicted by Vladimir Putin and the the Russian military, and so this is a this is a this is a big moment, and uh, we see don't we received actually a lot of good uh, responses from government leaders, and um, and we hope that this continues. Well, congratulations to you, Brent, and those who worked on that letter. It's also I'm sure it puts a little pep in our step, knowing that we are being heard along with yeah. others who are advocating for. Uh, these vulnerable refugees. I This is a bit of a tangent, but you might have a little window into how it works because of your work in politics. When you send a letter like that to the president, so is there a specific team that reads that and then reports to the president that this organization, this organization, this many people are advocating for this? How does that work? Yeah, so we we addressed it directly to President Biden. So that that's who it went to. Uh, what we also cc'd uh, the State Department, and Secretary Blinken, uh, Secretary of State, we uh, informed our contacts at the uh, White House's faith-based office uh, that we were sending them, give them a heads up. So Chelsea, our colleague in, in D.C., uh, she she said that she had received a bunch of feedback from various those various folks that we had sent it to. And so uh, we, we know that it was read pretty high up the chain, right. and it was uh, kind of factored in the president receives reports on what kind of feedback he is receiving, uh, what sorts of suggestions he's receiving. So it was it was added into that, I would imagine. And that is generally how uh, things are briefed to the president. Hey, on, on this particular matter, we've received a number of uh, requests or responses asking us to take action. And, you know, here's a here's a sense of who all was making those requests. So uh, in that sense, uh, you know, conceivably, I'm not saying this is actually how it played out, but conceivably it could have been asked or, or briefed to the president, hey, the administration is being asked, sir, uh, that we do more to help Ukrainian refugees. Of note, uh, the Southern Baptists have made that request. It's something like that. And that's, that is always helpful. Uh, so whether you are a local mayor uh, you're a member of Congress or you're the, you're the president of the United States, those sorts of – those bits of advocacy, they really do matter. That's an interesting look behind the curtain, so yeah. to speak. There President Biden at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite how it works. Not yes. right. So all of this comes in the context of President Biden being overseas this week. Uh, according to CNN, world leaders are meeting at the G7 to discuss the Russian invasion. Leaders attending a slew of emergency summits here in Brussels Thursday were working to settle on the next phase of their response to Russia's war in Ukraine. With new U.S. sanctions and refugee assistance, 
among the steps emerging from the SNAP talks. U.S. President Joe Biden announced new punishments directed at members of Russia's parliament and unveiled a plan to accept as many as 100,000 refugees fleeing the violence in Ukraine. A discussion of NATO's force posture along its eastern edge was also part of the last-minute diplomatic burst, and leaders conferred on what to do if Russia deploys a chemical, biological, or even nuclear weapon, a prospect causing increasing concern as the war reaches a stalemate. In a statement afterward, President Biden said NATO was, quote, as strong and united as it has ever been. And uh, so, you know, this this is an important moment. I think it it actually is evidence of how united the the G7 nations are and NATO is to confront this Russian aggression, that they are holding these sorts of spontaneous meetings in person. President Biden, after these conclude, he's actually going to go to Poland and meet uh, there with officials. And that's important. It, it is symbolic, but it's important that the, the president is in Europe and in Eastern Europe in particular uh, in a moment where there is so much going on in that region. And this is, uh, you know, it seems like every hour uh, there are new developments on this front. And uh, we need to we need to be ever vigilant about them because fellow image bearers are being harmed in this in this time. They are. And it is just terrible to see. I feel like another tangent, this is trivia day with Lindsay, because I find these things to be interesting. People might not know. Do you know what G7 stands for? Ooh, what does it stand for? Uh Uh-huh. Group of seven. Yep, you're right. You didn't let me down. I did not know that. But Wikipedia is telling me it it means group of seven, and I just want to explain a little bit. It's an intergovernmental political forum consisting of Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Its members are the world's largest IMF advanced economy, so that's International Monetary Fund, and wealthiest liberal democracies. The group is officially organized around shared values of pluralism and representative government. So there's a little lesson there today. I was not paying attention in class and did not remember those facts. Yes, and the European Union— is also represented there. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because the president of the European Commission is Ursula von der Leyen. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, but she is all, whenever you see the the kind of the pool pictures, the they call them the class pictures of the G7 leaders over the last couple of years. Uh, she is the female uh, who is there and, and she is the president of the European Commission. And so there's some more little bit of, trivia for you as well. Interesting. Uh, Yep. She is a rose among thorns, as we might say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I hope she's a rose. I I don't know. Actually, I I don't don't know. (laughs) So that brings us to our next big event that happened just this morning before we, we got to go on air here. The Supreme Court came back with a significant uh, ruling for religious liberty rights, and, and these have to deal with the religious liberty rights of a death row inmate. So a little bit of background. Uh, this involves actually a Southern Baptist pastor uh, out of Corpus Christi, Texas, Second Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Pastor Dana Moore. They have, based on on all that I've read, they have a, a pretty substantial prison ministry effort that is run out of Second Baptist Church there. 
And uh, this individual, John Ramirez, committed, by all accounts, a heinous crime, a a murder, uh, several years ago. And he was sentenced to death. Uh, During that time, because of Pastor Moore's efforts, uh, he has come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And praise God for that. But uh, I want to say that we included this in our brief, uh, the ERLC brief that, that that we were a part of on the case, uh, but I know I've read it in some other places. He does not dispute that he should face execution for his crime. Uh, but what has occurred here is he has asked uh, that as he goes into the execution chamber and once he's in there, that his his pastor of this SBC church, Pastor Moore, uh, be able to to pray over him and lay hands on him, which I think all of us certainly in the the Baptist world that that those are things we're very familiar with. So these are not out of the ordinary requests uh, from a Baptist faith uh, perspective, but that is in fact where this dispute lies. And so the Supreme Court came back with their decision this morning. And it was an eight to one ruling, and this comes to us. This coverage comes to us from ABC News. A near unanimous Supreme Court on Thursday said a death row inmate's spiritual advisor should be able to pray aloud and lay hands on an inmate at the moment of his execution, siding with a Texas man who had challenged the state ban on the practice. Chief Justice John Roberts, in an opinion joined by seven other justices, wrote that there was not a compelling government interest in denying these religious exercises, noting their extensive history in American death chambers and the availability of less restrictive steps to ensured security and decorum in that space. The decision was a victory for John Henry Ramirez, a 37-year-old sentenced to death by lethal injection, for the 2004 murder of a convenience store clerk and father of nine. So this all really started coming together uh, last fall. I think it was in October. It may have been November. Uh, But we heard about this. We had several allies in the religious liberty space who were active in the case, and and they let us know about it. I contacted Pastor Moore and and let him know that uh, we would like to engage on this. Uh, One of our own trustees, a state senator in in Texas, uh, he was working through some of his channels to just see if there was a way to to get this uh, resolved. And um, ultimately, the the Supreme Court did have to, to weigh in. And they have weighed in, and they have reversed the decision of the lower courts that this execution should move through, and they have remanded it, which means they have sent it back down to the lower courts. And basically, they've said what this prisoner is asking for is legitimate, and uh, the state of Texas should accommodate uh, these requests so that then they can move forward with the execution. It's a it's a significant victory, and and you know I think we said it in the quote from me in in the the release on this, that the Supreme Court affirmed here that religious freedom does not end at the execution chamber door. And that's that's true. If anything, in those final moments, religious liberty uh, should all the more be respected. Yeah, it's it's difficult to think about uh, our explainer that we were able to put up about this that our policy team worked so diligently and quickly on will help you to grasp some of the details of this case and why this matters, why it matters to us as Christians that death row inmates, that prisoners would have religious liberty because your instinct might be to say, no, this man doesn't have that because he he killed this convenience store clerk and this father of nine 
but that's not true. And he has come to a saving faith in Christ, which, by the way, may the Lord increase the tribe of Pastor Moore and his ministry. Uh, No one is beyond redemption of Jesus. No one's sins are beyond the forgiveness that Christ offers through the shedding of his blood. And we should praise the Lord that this man, uh, while he will be given justice here on this earth, and he's not denying his horrible crime, but that he will be given the comfort of having a, a brother in Christ care for him and lay hands on him and pray for him uh, when he's dying. I, I can't imagine being all alone in that situation and not having uh, just a measure of that comfort. So big congratulations to our team who worked so hard on this. And may it bring Ramirez and you know Pastor Moore some comfort in the midst of a really— Terrible situation. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just want to take a step back and and just can we all just note how this this shows no one is beyond the reach of the Lord. And even in the midst of a very tragic situation that for Mr. Ramirez was of his own making, even in the midst of that dark chapter, God is still moving. And he's still working, and he is still opening hearts. And right, yeah. Thank goodness we have and a savior that does that. Absolutely, there's hope for all of us. We don't always live like that or believe that deep down at our core. Uh, I'm sure a lot of us could uh, highlight a group of people for whom we brush off and say, uh, "No way." Um, but I'm thankful for Pastor Moore being faithful to the Word of God and other people that actually in a few weeks. We're going to be highlighting who on our site through an interview, print interview, we're going to be doing um, an interview with them about prison ministry, and they work with just some lifelong criminals, and they bring the hope and the redemption found in Christ, and uh, we're just so thankful for their faithfulness. All right, well, we were just talking about the Supreme Court, and our final story that's coming to us from CNN is about the potential next justice of the Supreme Court, who this week had her three-day hearings in the U.S. Senate wrap up. And so the CNN story here is about how tight that confirmation vote may end up uh, becoming. It says this, Now, as Jackson's marathon hearings wrap up and confirmation votes are slated to be held, it's almost certain that Jackson, a 51-year-old Ivy League-educated judge who would be the first black woman in history to sit on the high court and whose credentials and demeanor have been praised by both parties, won't be able to win more than a few Republican votes, meaning it could be one of the closest confirmation votes in U.S. history. Quote, things have changed so dramatically over the last 10 or 20 years, Senate Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin, a Democrat from Illinois, said in an interview. It's so hard to really create a bipartisan unity. I hope we can on this, but as you can tell, it's going to be a struggle. So this, over the last three days, uh, Democrats have gone back and forth with Republicans over uh, Judge Jackson's uh, background. And uh, she got a lot of praise from from Democrats. Uh, It says here in this story for Jackson, Republicans are almost certain to vote against her in mass, raising concerns over her sentencing decisions for child pornography cases as a district court judge, her representation of Guantanamo Bay detainees as an attorney, as well as her refusal to take positions on some hot button issues such as changing the size of the Supreme Court. Uh, Jackson has defended her record, saying she can't weigh in on political issues like the size of the high court, while maintaining that serving as an attorney does not mean that she has the same views as her client. And that, I mean, that that's pretty accurate across the board in, in law. Uh, but these have been, I, I would say, probably just 
watching uh, some of the the hearings, they they have been a, a little bit more acrimonious uh, than than people thought would initially be the case. Uh, but uh, needless to say, it is likely to be a tight vote because the U.S. Senate right now is a tight Democratic uh, majority, and so it will be interesting to see if any Republicans cross over to vote. Uh, for uh, Judge Jackson, uh, when that uh, when that vote uh, it should be on the floor, I would imagine here the the next uh, few days. So if it's split fifty fifty votes wise, what what happens if it is tied? Right. So if if there is in fact uh, a tie uh, for her uh, nomination to to be confirmed, uh, the Vice President of the United States, Vice President Kamala Harris, will end up making the the deciding vote to break the tie one way or the other. Now, obviously, she's the vice president. There's probably very little chance that she would not vote to affirm. Right. Uh, but that that would be how that's, uh, right. that's broken. So there's, I mean, realistically, there's probably very little chance that she's not going to be confirmed unless something silly happens. Right. Or a bunch of Democrats change their mind. But, okay, I don't agree with their politics. Mm-hmm. But how poetic that the first African-American— and first female vice president of the United States mm-hmm. is going to would possibly have the tie vote for breaking the tie vote for the first African American Supreme Court justice, yeah, the female justice. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. There is a certain poetic irony uh, about that. I don't know if it'll quite get to that. There's there there are several Republicans out there that have signaled more of a openness or willingness to voting uh, for for Judge Jackson, and there are several uh, members of the GOP who have a longstanding tradition of saying the president gets to determine who his nominees are, and we should not stand in the way of that. We should examine them, make sure that nothing in their record uh, it goes too far beyond what is acceptable, but. Uh, in general, the president uh, does get to decide who his nominees are, and uh, and we should make sure that those are pushed through the system. Uh, so it's probably on that basis that you might see a handful of Republicans, not many, uh, but a handful of Republicans could potentially vote for for this uh, this nomination. And it, it would be an I mean, we should take a step back. This would be a historic position and moment uh, for our nation, and one we should celebrate in that sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Lindsay, that is your uh, look. I feel like we, we've, we've talked a little bit uh, long here, but that is your look at This Week in Culture. Well, thanks for that, Brent. And now it's time for The Lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. It's appropriate today because my stomach has been growling so loudly throughout this whole podcast recording, particularly toward the end. Uh, But Brent, what are you going to cover for us here in your first lunchroom back in a while? So this one, I'm more commenting on the irony of this because we don't have Netflix, so I actually can't watch it. But Netflix recently sent out a press release announcing that the Ukrainian show starring the current president of Ukraine, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, is now back airing on Netflix. You can you can watch it now. And and folks may not remember. So President Zelensky, right? He's he's actually kind of a, a bit of a Renaissance man. He's got a law degree, mm-hmm. politician. He's a former comedian. He's a movie star in in Ukraine, and he did this show where he basically was an actor 
who got elected to be president. And I didn't realize this until this week. The basis of the show is that Russia invades Ukraine. No way. Yes. That's crazy. And so, like, talk about, you know— Maybe he's also a prophet. Going from the screens <laughs> to reality. Right? That's pretty crazy. And so that is just more what the post that we link to kind of talks about how, wow, that's really weird mm-hmm. that he is living the life that he was portraying on, on screen. But it, honestly, this is just a, another just another opportunity to comment on the incredible bravery and excellent leadership that President Zelensky is providing in this moment. I mean, he is, there are all sorts of comparisons out there right now to Prime Minister Churchill uh, or or even President Reagan. And I got to say, those are appropriate. Uh, I mean, because what he, especially the Churchill ones, because he is right firmly ensconced there in the capital in Kiev as it is being bombarded and he is sending out these public messages to continue to encourage the Ukrainian people. Uh, he is meeting with – he's giving uh, addresses to Congress or Parliament. We have not seen this type of leadership exhibited on the public stage in the in the global community, honestly, in quite some time. And that's that's good. Uh, because we we need that type of leadership, that type of moral leadership in our world. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. He is the leader that we have needed to see. Another person who deserves praise during this, too, is his wife, because she also has been taking to her Instagram and encouraging the Ukrainian people, saying that she's not afraid, encouraging them to fight, whereas me, I might be— I might be crouching in my bathroom crying, you know, thinking about what's what might happen to my family and my husband. And so she she deserves some props as well. And it is so, so encouraging to see to see right now. And that's pretty crazy about his his role on Netflix. Yeah. That's, I, I, that's I did not realize creepy. that it was like a, a central yeah. theme and it was Russia invading. Like that's would it make your heart uh, happy if Josiah Bartlett became president of the United States? Man. Yeah, it kind of would actually. Yeah, although we would have some pretty significant <laughs> some policy right. disagreements, but right. uh, to to have uh, a president who uh, possesses the types of skills and of oratory and and intellect that Josiah Bartlett has at his disposal uh, in the West Wing series, yeah, mm-hmm. that that would be that would be something to see in real life. Well, pretty interesting. So this article that I'm going to talk about is just for you, Brent, and it's from Axios, and it's uh, titled, Your Office Forever Changed. Is it because it's from Axios, which we love, or is it because of the subject? The subject (laughs) about the office, the the office, and if people will come back to the office. Anyway, says the national average office occupancy level from— before July into to January 22 into March, it was up at 100%, and then it's down. Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. From 2020 to 2022, from 100% to 39.5% right now. And it says, this graphic sends an unmistakable message, one many bosses don't want to hear, especially extroverted bosses like you who don't like to be alone. Never again will most office workers spend five-day, 40-hour weeks in physical buildings jammed with humans. It's very interesting. 
COVID will phase, but its legacy of habituating tens of millions of us to work from anywhere isn't going anywhere. This is the world, the working world's virtual reality era. As we saw when you were planning right after this Supreme Court decision and you were virtually executing our Supreme Court communications plan, a slew of big companies have already shuttered most of their offices, Nationwide Insurance, Pinterest, Coinbase, Dropbox. Meta execs, including Mark Zuckerberg, are scattering far from headquarters in Silicon Silicon Valley to Israel, the UK, Hawaii. So I wouldn't mind if we had a, a remote working situation set up in uh, in Hawaii for us. That might that might work out well. I think that would motivate work actually. So I mean this reporting is based on the latest statistics. I think it's gonna change. I think it's gonna come yeah. back. I don't know. I think the this is I mean I I do think I I think that workplaces have to adjust for more people being accommodated through a working-from-home scenario or working-remote scenario. Which you have been very accommodating, by the way. Well, if, yeah. I mean, if, well, I mean, a, a, COVID is still very real. And, and so, I mean, it's still a, a factor uh, in, in some sense. And I also realized, you know, a large part of our team are are working members uh, of families, and and so we want to you know we're a pro family organization, so we want to accommodate that as well. Uh, and I mean the thing that has the the thing that is most important is in this season. I mean particularly over the last you know well since COVID began, and I would say even more so over the last ten months, as our our team has gotten a little bit smaller, our team has performed with excellence uh, working from, we have not missed a beat. As our team has gotten a little bit smaller, that's the understatement of the year. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so. We're, we're a tad bit smaller, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, our, our team has continued to serve uh, with with excellence and distinction uh, on covering and, and analyzing the issues that are important to to Baptists and to, and to Christians. And so, uh, if that wasn't the case, then maybe we'd say, eh, you know, we, we need to be back more uh, personally in the office on a much more uh, rigid basis, but uh, our team has, its performance has been incredible. And so probably other uh, employers out there are noticing that as well. And, and some of that may also have to do with just the size of our organization. Uh, and we already had a number of folks that were working remotely even prior to COVID. So uh, some of this is unique, but I yeah. just think, I think a lot, a lot of larger companies and larger firms are still betting that a number of folks are, I mean, we'll why else would these buildings be going up all around us yeah. in downtown Nashville? I don't know, but it says, this is why, three reasons why it's not going back to normal. It says, fat chance, boss, if you think it is. <laughs> People bolted. I have to read this one because it's it, it's a shout out to Nashville. 17% of office workers moved away. Just look at the soaring population and housing prices in America's boom towns and tech hubs. Murfreesboro, Tennessee, a suburb of Nashville, has grown 20% during the pandemic. That's crazy. And these people need to stop moving here because our houses are way too these expensive. These people need to stop moving <laughs> know, here, kidding. please. <laughs> our, we, can't, we can't move into different houses because nobody can afford right. anything. I mean, I appreciate that the nations are actually coming here right. uh, for us as, as evangelicals. The uh, nations, but we, we can't actually support the geographic size of the nations. We, we don't have that the much The nations room. aren't going to be able to afford moving here. Only Californians. <laughs> <laughs> we love Californians. Okay, workers demand flexibility. Uh, so they they want to just change it up and or they'll quit. 11 million jobs are open in, in America. 
If a company forces people to come in, they'll go look for a job at one of the hundreds of startups and Fortune 500 companies offering remote work. Was, so, that, a, was that a shot across the bell, Lindsay? That one? Or telling you I'm going to quit? <laughs> you can't do it. <laughs> I think you're going to fire me before I quit, actually. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not sure about my job security here, but for now, I'm one of your hosts on the ERLC <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we do know from last week, if you listen, that Jill would be a good, not stand-in, but she, yeah, she'd be a good one to take over. Oh my gosh, would you stop? You're like creating <laughs> your succession, succession plan. I'm stop living right out here. like Zelensky. I'm living out my... <laughs> This moment is going to turn into reality. I hope not. Okay, well, so you might be listening to this from the comfort of your remote work situation. If you're still listening. If you're still listening. And let us know, do you plan to go back to work full-time in the office? Are you going to tell your boss that chance? In that case, you probably will be stuck remote. (laughs) Oh, I think that's a good place to end it, Brent. It's a great place to end it. Thanks, Lindsay. We're glad you're back. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.